Chapter One of A Magician Among the Spirits by Harry Houdini. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One The Founders of Modern Spiritualism. The story of modern spirit manifestations, so called, dates from 1848 in the solitary farmhouse of John D. Fox and his wife in the village of Hydesville in New York State, and centers around their two little girls, Margaret, eight, and Kate, younger by a year and a half. Successfully exploited while still children, credited with occult power, becoming world-famous as the Fox sisters, their record is, without exception, one of the most interesting in the history of spiritualism. John Fox and his wife appear to have been of the good, honest, but not mentally keen type of farmer folk. Of the two, the wife was the more simple-minded, and when the nervous, superstitious woman began to hear unusual noises which she could not account for, and which seemed in some peculiar manner connected with her children, she concluded at once that the sounds were unnatural and began to brood over the matter. Her fears increased with the persistent recurrence of the mysterious sounds, and before long she took some of the neighbors into her confidence. They were as puzzled as the mother, the fox home became an object of suspicion, and the neighborhood set itself the task of solving the mystery. With the increase of interest came a proportionate increase in the noises, which commenced to be known as rappings, and which, in spite of the positive denials by the children of any knowledge of how they were produced, regularly answered by an uncanny code questions asked the two girls. The possibility of duplicity in such children never occurred to anyone in Hydesville, with the result that the timid hint of a disembodied spirit soon became a theory. Someone asked the girls if a murder had ever been committed in the house. The ominous sounds of the code answered in the affirmative, and at once to the eager investigators the theory became a proven fact, and there flashed up in their minds the vision of a personality in the spirit world endeavoring by crude means, which somewhat resembled telegraphy, to give to human beings the benefit of its vaster knowledge the whole affair in some obscure manner being connected with two little girls. At this critical moment, a married daughter of John D. Fox and his wife came home to Hydesville for a visit. Twenty-three years older than little Margaret, of a very different type than either father or mother, she seems to have grasped instantly the possibilities in the occult powers of her little sisters, and to have taken complete command of the Fox family's affairs at once. Her first move was to organize a society of spiritualists and encourage crowds to come to the house to see the children. Hydesville became famous almost overnight. 
news of the peculiar wrappings spread with lightning-like rapidity and soon became an absorbing topic of conversation, not only in the United States, but in England, France, Italy, and Germany as well. Women like Harriet Martineau and Elizabeth Barrett Browning were said to have given their whole thought to it, and men of the strongest intellect and will to be caught in the meshes it had woven in contemporaneous thought. Hydesville became too small a field for the operations of Mrs. Fish, the older sister, very quickly, and soon she appears in Rochester with the girls publicly exhibiting their feats to great crowds for money, realizing from one hundred to a hundred and fifty dollars a night in profits, which she pocketed. From Rochester she took them to New York City, and later the girls made a tour of the cities of the United States, attracting the most prominent theologians, physicians, and professional men of all kinds, as well as great crowds everywhere. There is no record that the girls were ever under the management of Mrs. Fish after they left New York City, although she menaced them continually, and Margaret feared her as long as she lived. The grand tour over, Kate, sponsored by Horace Greeley, went to school, and Margaret, just developing into an attractive young woman, and destined to become the more famous of the two mediums, began a series of seances in rooms occupied by herself and mother at the Union Hotel in Philadelphia. There romance entered her life on a day in 1853 in the person of Dr. Elijah Kent Kane, the noted Arctic explorer. His had been a remarkable career. Belonging to one of the most aristocratic families in Philadelphia, the son of a judge, handsome, still under 34, graduated more than ten years previously from the University of Pennsylvania, he had gone out to China with Commodore Parker as surgeon of the embassy, later obtained leave of absence and traveled through Greece on foot, went up the Nile, toured India, Ceylon, and the South Sea Islands, and even dared the Himalayas. The Mexican War had furnished him an opportunity to win spurs for gallantry, and this over, he had joined a relief expedition which went in search of Sir John Franklin in 1850. This much-traveled, much-experienced man of the world was instantly and irresistibly attracted to the young medium. An acquaintance was formed, and it was not long before Dr. Kane determined that, regardless of all obstacles, she should be his wife. In spite of the efforts of his family, he soon made arrangements to educate Margaret, and she was placed with a tutor in a quiet suburb of Philadelphia, where an aunt of the doctor's could have an oversight of her, and where, in addition to her other studies, she was to be made proficient in French, German, and Italian, as well as vocal and instrumental music. Her vacations were spent with a sister of Senator Cockrell. 
For some three or four years she was thus sheltered from the world, while the doctor did all in his power to eradicate from her mind everything connected with spiritualism and wrappings. Then came the turn of the tide. The doctor became broken in health as a result of exposure in the Arctic and decided to go abroad. There had been neither civil or religious ceremony to mark his marriage to Margaret, but just before he sailed, in the presence of her mother and other witnesses, he declared that they were husband and wife. His health grew worse in London, and he left there for the West Indies, where Margaret and her mother were to join him, but their preparations for the journey were cut short by the announcement in the papers of his death in Havana on the 16th of February, 1857. Margaret was prostrated by the blow. A long sickness followed, and when she finally recovered, it was to face the world not only friendless and alone, but penniless as well for owing to a compromise she did not share in the doctor's estate. Disappointed, disheartened, and bitter, she went back to her spiritualism and wrappings. For thirty years she wandered from place to place, holding seances. For thirty years she suffered the tortures of remorse and ill health. She believed she was being driven into hell. She loathed the thing she was, and tried at times to drown her troubles in wine. For thirty years she lived in constant fear of her older sister. Then Margaret Kane found a temporary solace in the Catholic Church. But there were still more months of struggle before she finally found courage to tell the story of the world-famous wrappings in a signed confession given to the press in October 1888. I do this, she said, because I consider it my duty, a sacred thing, a holy mission to expose it, spiritualism. I want to see the day when it is entirely done away with. After I expose it, I hope spiritualism will be given a death blow. I was the first in the field, and I have a right to expose it. My sister Katie and I were very young children when this horrible deception began. I was only eight, just a year and a half older than she. We were very mischievous children, and sought merely to terrify our dear mother, who was a very good woman and very easily frightened. When we went to bed at night, we used to tie an apple to a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor, or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. Mother listened to this for a time. She would not understand it and did not suspect us as being capable of a trick because we were so young. At last she could stand it no longer, and she called the neighbors in and told them about it. It was this that set us to discover a means of making the wraps more effectually. I think, when I reflect about it, that it was a most wonderful discovery— a very wonderful thing that children should make such a discovery, 
and all through a desire to do mischief only. Our oldest sister was twenty-three years of age when I was born. She was in Rochester when these tricks first began, but came to Hydesville, the little village in central New York, where we were born and lived. All the neighbors around, as I have said, were called in to witness these manifestations. There were so many people coming to the house that we were not able to make use of the apple trick except when we were in bed and the room was dark. Even then we could hardly do it, so the only way was to rap on the bedstead. And that is the way we began. First, as a mere trick to frighten mother, and then, when so many people came to see us children, we were ourselves frightened, and for self-preservation forced to keep it up. No one suspected us of any trick because we were such young children. We were led on by my sister purposely and by mother unintentionally. We often heard her say, is this a disembodied spirit that has taken possession of my dear children? That encouraged our fun, and we went on. All the neighbors thought there was something, and they wanted to find out what it was. They were convinced that someone had been murdered in the house. They asked the spirits through us about it, and we would wrap one for the spirit answer yes, not three, as we did afterwards. The murder, they concluded, must have been committed in the house. They went over the whole surrounding country, trying to get the names of people who had formerly lived in the house. Finally, they found a man by the name of Bell, and they said that this poor innocent man had committed a murder in the house and that the noises came from the spirit of the murdered person. Poor Bell was shunned and looked upon by the whole community as a murderer. Mrs. Underhill, my eldest sister, took Katie and me to Rochester. There it was that we discovered a new way to make the wraps. My sister Katie was the first to observe that by swishing her fingers she could produce certain noises with her knuckles and joints, and that the same effect could be made with the toes. Finding that we could make wraps with our feet, first with one foot and then with both, we practiced until we could do this easily when the room was dark. Like most perplexing things when made clear, it is astonishing how easily it is done. The wrappings are simply the result of a perfect control of the muscles of the leg below the knee, which govern the tendons of the foot and allow action of the toe and ankle bones that is not commonly known. Such perfect control is only possible when a child is taken at an early age and carefully and continually taught to practice the muscles, which grow stiff in later years. A child at twelve is almost too old. With control of the muscles of the foot, the toes may be brought down to the floor without any movement that is perceptible to the eye. The whole foot, in fact, can be made to give wrappings by the use only of the muscles below the knee. This, then, is the simple explanation of the whole method of the knocks and wraps. 
In Rochester, Mrs. Underhill gave exhibitions. We had crowds coming to see us, and she made as much as a hundred to a hundred and fifty dollars a night. She pocketed this. Parties came in from all parts to see us. Many, as soon as they heard a little rap, were convinced. To all questions we answered by raps. We knew when to rap yes or no, according to certain signs which Mrs. Underhill gave us during the seance. A great many people, when they hear the rapping, imagine at once that the spirits are touching them. It is a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to see me some years ago when I lived in 42nd Street, and I did some rappings for them. I made the spirit rap on the chair, and one of the ladies cried out, I feel the spirit tapping me on the shoulder. Of course, that was pure imagination. Katie and I were led around like lambs. We went to New York from Rochester, and then all over the United States. We drew immense crowds. I remember particularly Cincinnati. We stopped at the Burnett House. The rooms were jammed from morning till night, and we were called upon by those old wretches to show our wrappings when we should have been out at play in the fresh air. Nobody has ever suspected anything from the start in 1848 until the present day as to any trickery in our methods. There has never been a detection. But as the world grew wise and science began to investigate, we began to adapt our experiments to our audiences. Our seances were held in a room. There was a center table in the middle, and we all stood around it. As far as spirits were concerned, neither my sister nor I thought about it. I know that there is no such thing as the departed returning to this life. Many people have said to me that such a thing was possible, and seemed to believe so firmly in it that I tried to see, and I have tried in every form and know that it cannot be done. After I married, Dr. Kane would not let me refer to my old life. He wanted me to forget it. But when I was poor, after his death, I was driven to it again, and I wish to say clearly that I owe all my misfortune to that woman, my sister. I have asked her time and again, now that you are rich, why don't you save your soul? But at my words she would fly into a passion. She wanted to establish a new religion, and she told me that she received messages from spirits. She knew that we were tricking people, but she tried to make us believe spirits existed. She told us that before we were born, spirits came into her room and told her that we were destined for great things. Yes, I am going to expose spiritualism from its very foundation. I have had the idea in my head for many a year, but I have never come to a determination before. I have thought of it day and night. I loathe the thing I have been. I used to say to those who wanted me to give a seance, you are driving me into hell. Then the next day I would drown my remorse in wine. I was too honest to remain a medium. 
That's why I gave up my exhibitions. I have seen so much miserable deception. Every morning of my life I have it before me. When I wake up, I brood over it. That is why I am willing to state that spiritualism is a fraud of the worst description. I have had a life of sorrow, I have been poor and ill, but I consider it my duty, a sacred thing, a holy mission to expose it. I want to see the day when it is entirely done away with. After my sister Katie and I expose it, I hope spiritualism will be given a death blow. I do not want it understood that the Catholic Church has advised me to make these public exposures and confession. It is my own idea, my own mission. I would have done it long ago if I could have had the necessary money and courage to do it. I could not find anyone to help me. I was too timid to ask. I am now very poor. I intend, however, to expose spiritualism because I think it is my sacred duty. If I cannot do it, who can? I who have been the beginning of it. At least I hope to reduce the ranks of the eight million spiritualists in the country. I go into it as into a holy war. I am waiting anxiously and fearlessly for the moment when I can show the world by personal demonstration that all spiritualism is a fraud and a deception. It is a branch of ledger domain, but it has to be closely studied to gain perfection. None but a child at an early age would have ever attained the proficiency and wrought such widespread evil as I have. I trust that this statement, coming solemnly from me, the first and the most successful in this deception, will break the rapid growth of spiritualism and prove that it is all a fraud, hypocrisy, and delusion. Signed, Margaret Fox Kane. Mrs. Kane's confession was published in the Sunday edition of the New York World on October 21, 1888. Arrangements had been made for her to give a public demonstration and exposition of the so-called marvelous spiritualistic phenomena that same evening at the Academy of Music in New York. Meanwhile, in order to foil the attempts of certain mediums to kidnap her, she was being closely guarded at her hotel, where during the day she was interviewed by a newspaper man. Expecting when she left her room to answer questions, only she nevertheless readily consented to give some evidence of how the trick was done in order to do all in her power to complete the exposure and demonstrate the utter absurdity of the claim made by mediums that she was possessed of spiritual power in spite of her denials. The world reporter told of this private demonstration as follows. Now, said Mrs. Kane, I will stand up before these folding doors, and you may stand as near as you please, and I will call up any spirit that you wish and answer any questions. One rap means no, and three raps mean yes. Are you ready? Is Napoleon Bonaparte present? 
the reporter answered, watching Mrs. Kane closely. Three raps, yes. Does he know me? I mean, did he ever meet and converse with me? Three raps. That is strange, isn't it? remarked Mrs. Kane, smiling, in view of the fact that he must have died before you were born. Try again. Is Abraham Lincoln present? Three raps. Well, you see the spirits are very obliging. Will Harrison be elected? One loud rap, no. Will President Cleveland get another term? Three raps. That night, some 2,000 or more persons crowded the Academy of Music to witness the sensational expose. Most of them were sober, sensible people who hailed with delight the announcement that one of the famous Fox sisters was to make a clean breast of her share in spiritualistic humbuggery. But certain portions of the house were packed with pronounced spiritualists, men and women who regarded all efforts to disillusion the public as so many personal insults. And when, previous to Mrs. Kane's appearance, Dr. C. M. Richmond, a prominent New York dentist who had spent twenty years and thousands of dollars investigating mediumistic tricks and wiles, explained and demonstrated in full light the full methods of producing them, this spiritualistic contingent became decidedly hostile. And when Mrs. Kane finally stepped before the big audience to confess orally what she had already confessed in print, she was laboring under too great a nervous strain to make any intelligent utterance. Those in charge of the affair, realizing that an address was out of the question, at once suggested that she immediately give a demonstration of the wrappings. One of the New York papers the next morning published the following description of what happened. But if her tongue had lost its power, her preternatural toad joint had not. A plain wooden stool or table, resting upon four short legs and having the properties of a sounding board, was placed in front of her. Removing her shoe, she placed her right foot upon this little table. The entire house became breathlessly still and was rewarded by a number of little short, sharp raps, those mysterious sounds which have for forty years frightened and bewildered hundreds of thousands of people in this country and in Europe. A committee consisting of three physicians taken from the audience then ascended the stage and having made an examination of her foot during the progress of the wrappings, unhesitatingly agreed that the sounds were made by the action of the first joint of her large toe. The demonstration was perfect and complete, and only the most hopelessly prejudiced and bigoted fanatics of spiritualism could withstand the irresistible force of this commonplace explanation and exhibition of how spirit wrappings are produced. The exposure attracted widespread attention. Letters poured in from far and wide, begging for confirmation, explanation, or denial. 
The rest of the tribe of mediums naively hinted that if there had been fraud, it was well to have it exposed, but of course they were genuine. Many who had believed in spiritualism wrote most pathetically. One of these writing from San Francisco says, I have been a believer in the phenomena from its first inception through you and your sister, believing it to be true since that time. I am now 81 years old and have but a short time, of course, to remain in this world, and I feel a great anxiety to know through you if I have been deceived all this time in a matter of vital interest to us all. But perhaps of them all, none better expresses what a blow the exposure was to thousands who had accepted as genuine the messages of the mysterious raps, or describes more vividly the effect of spiritualism on many who are attracted to it than the following from a woman in Boston. Hundreds of thousands have believed through you and you alone. Hundreds of thousands eagerly ask you whether all the glorious light that they fancied you had given them was but the false flicker of a common dip candle of fraud. If, as you say, you were forced to pursue this imposture from childhood, I can forgive you, and I am sure God will, for he turns not back the truly repentant. I will not upbraid you, I am sure you have suffered as much as any penalty, human or divine, could cause you to suffer. The disclosures that you make take from me all that I have cherished most. There is nothing left for me now but to hope for the reality of that repose which death promises us. It is perhaps better that the delusion should be at last swept away by one single word, and that word fraud. I know that the pursuit of this shadowy belief has wrought upon my brain and that I am no longer my old self. Money I have spent in thousands and thousands of dollars within a few short years to propitiate the mediumistic intelligence. It is true that never once have I received a message or the token of a word that did not leave a still unsatisfied longing in my heart, a feeling that it was not really my loved one after all who was speaking to me, or if it was my loved one that he was changed, that I hardly knew him and he hardly knew me. But that must have been the true intuition." It is better that the delusion is past, after all, for had I kept on in that way, I am sure I should have gone mad. The constant seeking, the frequent pretended response, its unsatisfying meaning, the sense of distance and change between me and my loved one, oh, it has been horrible, horrible. He who is dying of thirst and has the sweet cup ever snatched from his lips, just as the first drop touches them. He alone can know what in actual things is the similitude of this spiritualistic torture. God bless you, for I think that you now speak the truth. You have my forgiveness, at least, and I believe that thousands of others will forgive you, for the atonement made in season 
wipes out much of the stain of the early sin. Margaret Kane's confession did not bring her the relief or friends she had hoped for, nor did it end her connection with spiritualism, for glad as she would have been to give it up for good, her theatrical exposure was a financial failure, and before long she was down and out again, and once more she resorted to spiritualism as a means of livelihood, giving seances and mediumistic meetings in a number of cities throughout the United States. But her power of fooling the public was gone. Having confessed to deceit once, no amount of persuasion on her part could convince the public that she was genuine, and in place of the thousands who had flocked to her in her younger days, she never had more than a handful at her meetings. Her only friends were spiritualists, for, strangely enough, some of them still had faith in her, even when she was exposing spiritualism, believing that she had fallen into the hands of evil spirits when she confessed that she was a fraud. Some time after the confession, a recantation was circulated as coming from Mrs. Kane. I was never able to find any proof of its authenticity, but my friend, Mr. W. S. Davis, who knew her well, informed me that she did make it, that she had to or starve. It was not wholly voluntary, though, as Mr. Newton, then president of the First Society of Spiritualists, convinced her that it would be for her interest, and the interest of spiritualism as well to do it. It made little difference, however, for the career of the unfortunate woman was nearly over. Frequently overcome by drink, forced on by privation and misery, Death came to her on March 8, 1895, less than seven years after she had stood in a crowded theater and deliberately shown the method of making the raps which had brought her fame for four decades. The Fox sisters used spiritualism only as a means to get while the getting was good. Fortunately for the general public, spiritualism received a severe jolt in the confession of Margaret Fox Kane. There was an end to the Fox swindle and an untold amount of blood money and grief saved to poor misguided souls so easily fooled by a simple physical trick. End of chapter one.